go. Bailey, hello. Hello, Mother. Welcome back. And we are here for episode 11. 11. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) We've rearranged our seating and equidistant from the microphone, so I'm hoping that we have good sound quality today. So you're going to go first this week? I am. Okay. Because my story is really kind of upsetting. They're all pretty upsetting no matter what. Well, it's upsetting for a lot of reasons, not just because of what happened. Okay. So, the Englewood neighborhood takes up just over three square miles in the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. Its 1980 population had already dropped from its peak of 97,000 in 1960. So remember, this is three square miles. In 1960, it was 97,000 people who lived there. Wow, okay. In... 1980, it had dropped down to 59,000. Over the next 20 years, it dropped another one-third to about 40,000. And by 2020, there were only about 24,000 people still making their home in this neighborhood. Okay. Are you going to tell me why? Because Three-quarters of the neighbors had left this area over a 60-year period. That's how scary it was to live there. Okay. So just imagine life in Englewood, Mm -hmm. where the crime rate was very high. But the majority of people were law-abiding, low-income families just trying to raise their kids and make Mm -hmm. ends meet. It was especially frightening for women because women were being murdered in Englewood. I mean, women are murdered everywhere, but at this time, I'm about to tell you what it was like to be a woman in Englewood. Bodies began being found in 1993, and they just seemed to keep showing up. Women who had developed an addiction were disappearing. Women who used sex work to supplement their income were disappearing. Women who happened to befriend the wrong guy were disappearing. In 1997, Hubert Gerald's Jr., a drug-addicted man who was described as having an IQ of 73, approximately that of an 8-year-old, was convicted of six murders as well as rape. Gerald's had been, as a child, viciously abused, mentally abused, physically abused, and sexually abused Mm -hmm. by his mother's partner during his childhood, and it was believed that he had suffered brain damage during this abuse. It was also claimed by his defense team that he had a mental disorder known as paraphilia, which compelled him to have sexual contact with people who were unconscious. Oh, I've never heard that term before. I have heard it, but I don't think I knew what it meant. Yeah, okay. Paraphilia sounds like you like paragliding. Or, you <laughs> I know, can only have sex in the air. <laughs> when I'm dropping out of a plane <laughs> at 20,000 feet. So Hubert Gerald's had a lot of great things going for him. Mm. And ultimately, he had been arrested when his sister found one of the string of murder victims in a trash bin behind a neighbor's house, and she contacted authorities. She told him that her brother was an addict who sometimes became violent, especially when he was using drugs. Mm-hmm. For police, that was enough because they just wanted somebody to look at. And they took him into custody. After his arrest, he was identified by a survivor of a rape that had taken place two months before. This survivor, a woman named Clenshaw Hopes, had been nearly suffocated and she just barely escaped with her life. Okay. So Gerald's was investigated, he was interrogated, and despite his inability to really fully understand what was going on in the proceedings because of his low IQ, he confessed to all six murders he was accused of that had taken place over a six-month period between December 1994 and June of 1995. And he had killed during that period, suffocating and strangling victims who had also been raped. He admitted to murdering Doretha Withers, age 37, 
Alonda Tart, age 23, Joyce Wilson, age 28, Millicent Jones, age 25, who went by Peanut, which is adorable, Mary Blackman, age 42, and he also admitted to murdering Rhonda King, age 25, although I saw one report that said age 18, but I saw 25 in more locations, Okay, who had been murdered in December of 1994 before any of the other women. In the same neighborhood, between 1993 and 1999, there was another man who had been continuously arrested for assault, rape, drug possession, and theft, and each time he would receive suspended sentences and also be released. This man had also experienced a violent and traumatic childhood, having been sexually and physically assaulted by his mother, who was later charged for her poor parenting, and he was put into the foster system. Later, you know, after his time in the foster system, he was really distressed by that, and he made his way to his mother's relatives, where he claimed that he was again sexually abused. So he had started life in violence, and he continued it in his adulthood because that was all he knew. Yeah. He had served in both the Army and later in the Navy, where he was dishonorably discharged because of his drug use. After all the years of avoiding prison, because he kept getting suspended sentences every time, finally, in 1999, he received a suspended sentence with probation, and this required him to submit a blood sample for DNA. Okay. So the sample was taken, and it was added to the DNA database. This man had a long history of criminal activity, unemployment, drug abuse, vagrancy, and aggression towards women, so it was not a surprise to anyone when the blood sample taken in 1999 came back in 2000 with hits on seven murders of women over the last six years. This man, whose name was Andre Crawford, was arrested based on the DNA evidence connected to his blood sample, and he was interrogated about the seven murders believed to be connected to him. Crawford admitted his guilt and in fact admitted to several additional murders that had not been traced to him, as well as an attack on a woman who was able to survive. Crawford had chosen African-American victims, most of whom were casual acquaintances of him. He had lured them to empty houses or other abandoned buildings with promises of drugs or offering to pay them for sex. Once he got them into a solitary place, he would strangle them, beat them, or stab them. He would cover their faces after he killed them, and he would steal their shoes. Oddly. What? Did he just have, like, a foot thing? Like They don't know. Okay. They don't know. Sometimes he sold the shoes, but it isn't known if he was taking the shoes merely so he could sell them, or if he actually fetishized. Like a trophy type of situation? Okay. Yeah, there might be some of both. I don't know. But I, if he sold some of them, I'm thinking it wasn't so much trophies. He would then leave the victim's body at the crime scene and would sometimes return later to perform acts of necrophilia mm. with the corpses, which just makes my skin crawl. Gross. Yeah. Sometimes he would return more than once per victim. What the fuck? Yeah, Ugh. that's sickening. Claudia Robinson was the only victim known who escaped with her life, and she feels lucky and blessed to be alive, despite having no use of her right hand and having a metal rod in one of her legs. Mm. On Thanksgiving night of 1997, Crawford had beaten her in the head with a piece of 2 by 4 dimension lumber, and she fell, she played dead, he left. It's brutal. She got up and took off. And I don't for her. Know, I don't know how you... <laughs> I don't know how she even got out of there. If she lost the use of her right arm, and she had one leg so damaged that it had to put a rod into it... It's that adrenaline, you know? That's true. It's pulsing through you, and you don't feel the pain until it's like, okay, I can relax for a second. I'm sure she was feeling pain. Not to the extent, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Andre Crawford, who, after being caught, expressed no remorse for the deaths of the 11 women that he killed or the rapes or the other injuries that he had caused, said that if he were freed, he would definitely continue to murder. Well, at least he's honest, I guess, about that. Psychologists who testified at his trial relayed that he had told them that because of the way he was mistreated and even prostituted by his mother, I mean, holy fuck. You know, it's one thing to be a sexually abused child, but if your own mother... Is passing you around to... Passing you around and and selling you. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how did he have any chance at all in the world? I mean, it's like they always say on... I think it's on Morbid, where it's like... You can feel sorry for the child, but not feel sorry for the adult. Right. And that's yeah, unfortunately what And the, by know. the 90s, people knew that there was mental health assistance Options available. And, yeah, like therapy was pretty open Yeah, it was and not just, a it was not a big secret void anymore that people mm-hmm. had no idea it's that they like were... It's not like a shame cloud over your family if you happen to need some mental health. Right, it's especially not, if you were victimized as a child. Yeah, nobody's blaming you for that, I promise. Yes. The psychologist that testified at his trial relayed that he had told them that because of the way he was mistreated, he felt that all women needed to be strangled and have their heads beaten in. Mm-hmm. Yep, you lost me. <laughs> no. He told police, I'm glad I was caught. I'm like a shark in a pool. I'm sure he didn't say it in that voice, but you know what I mean. I feel like he might have, though. <sighs> and he was able to continue as long as he did for several reasons. As we know, the sociopath is frequently able to fool everyone Mm -hmm. around them. It later was discovered that while the victims were being regularly discovered and the community was scared, he had been involved as part of a police operation that had been set up to try to catch what the police had already identified was a serial killer. They knew they were dealing with a serial killer, and he's like, hey, what can I do to help? Yeah, they always have to get involved. Yes. Mm. He would show up at the community meetings that were being run by the police, When the detectives would walk in, he would stand up and clap for them. He would act supportive of all their efforts. He had helped distribute composite drawings of the suspect. Apparently, it didn't look that much like him. I was going to say, did they have a picture of that? Because I'd like to see the comparison. Here, let me hand you this drawing of myself and tell you to stay away from this guy. (laughs) He shared safety tips with women. Who, to help them learn how not to become a victim. Mm-hmm. He participated in surveillance activities in the area. You know, he was like part of the block watch or whatever. He also volunteered as part of Operation Safe Passage, where he escorted local children through dangerous parts of the neighborhood as God, they walked to school. God, that freaks me out so much. I hate this. <laughs> I know. It's, it's awful. Just imagine your little five-year-old mm. walking with this serial killer to school. Mm. I mean, at least he didn't kill children, so at least they weren't... Yeah, but he was also sexually abused as a child, and I I don't know, I just feel like a lot of people who were sexually abused as a child and end up being pedophiles blame it on that, and it's like... That's a really good point. So I I don't know, who knows if he did? (laughs) Well, let's hope not, because we don't have any evidence of that, so... Uh, anyway, his neighbor said that he seemed normal, he seemed very nice, he was the guy who would offer to shovel people snow, he would do odd jobs for money... And for many years, he would sometimes do work driving delivery trucks full of newspapers for the Chicago Sun-Times. So he seemed like he fit in. He's very active in his community. Yeah, he didn't seem like a weirdo Mm -hmm. to anybody. But the real monstrous Andre Crawford murdered these 11 women. Evandry Harris, age 44. Patricia Dunn, age 37. Angel Shatin, age 36, who was pregnant at the time of her Mm -hmm. murder. Shaquanta Langley, and I can't find any information about her. 
Sonia Brandon, I can't find any information about her. Nicole Townsend, age 32. Gerald Cross, age 38. Tommy Dennis, no information is available about her. Cheryl Johnson, age 44. Constance Bailey, no information is available about her. And Rhonda King, age 25, who was actually his second murder victim. Does that name sound familiar? What was it again? Rhonda King. This brings oh. us back to the beginning where Hubert Gerald had confessed to the murder of Rhonda King. And he was the one with the lower IQ. That's so right. I gotcha. Andre Crawford now had also confessed to killing Rhonda King, mm-hmm. a crime for which Hubert Gerald was already on death row. The Crawford testimony was considered to be more reliable than Gerald's due to his low IQ and also because Crawford's DNA now tied him to this crime. DNA does not lie. DNA does not lie. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that the first murder to which Gerald's had confessed was committed by this other man, and DNA proved it. So based on this, in 2000, Gerald's death sentence and murder convictions were thrown out by Cook County. But then he had committed... Other murders. Those, most of those murders. So uh-huh. he then again confessed to the other five murders. And he was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay. Due to various factors, Crawford's trial didn't begin until near the end of 2009. And so he had spent close to 10 years in the Cook County Jail awaiting trial which was the longest of any inmate in the history of Illinois. What took them so long to get him into court? There were various reasons, and I don't know what they were, but they said there were various reasons. He was convicted on all counts for the 11 murders and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. The families of the murdered women were upset with the sentence, especially since he smiled when it was announced. Yeah, people like that. Death penalty. That's why it needs to be there. Although the jury had been unanimous for the verdict, it was not unanimous for the death penalty, and that's why he received life. So that was just lucky for him, because they knew he did them. All it takes is one person on there that's like, I'm anti-death penalty. and Well, I don't even know it was that. There was one of the family members Mm -hmm. of one of the victims who said... This happened right before Christmas, Mm -hmm. and these people didn't want to go home at Christmas and think, I just sent a man to his death. Uh So I get it. The holiday times, you're just feeling a little extra jolly, a little extra pep in your step. Right, and you don't, they didn't want to have that hanging over them. Mm -hmm. So that's what the families thought, that the jurors just felt like it was just too much for them at that time of year. I get it. So Crawford later died of liver cancer in March 2017, two days before he would have turned 55, and he had been incarcerated for 17 years for the killings. There were many people who felt bitterly and rightfully that if Crawford had been required to give a DNA sample after his arrest for felony theft in 1993... All of these things could have been prevented. Yes, if that had happened, that would have put him in custody, preventing Mm -hmm. the other 10 women from having ever been murdered. But since he was not required to give the sample until 1999 when he was paroled, mm-hmm. 10 additional women died by his hand with DNA evidence, having been recovered from all of the crime scenes, but nothing to match it with in the database. I know that they do a lot more now as far as taking DNA and swabs and stuff as soon as they get arrested, but do you think that's just for people who do commit felonies? Or I think is it that is. Like... I don't think you have to give DNA for a misdemeanor. Okay, so if you shoplifted, you probably don't have to. But yeah, I don't think so, but I'm I'm not an expert on that, so I, I just don't. I would be curious to look that up after we're done. But <laughs> yeah, if anybody knows, let us know. Yeah, we're not in law enforcement, so. <laughs> 
So, Rhonda King, who was murdered yes. in December 1994, was a woman whose murder was claimed by not one, but two different serial killers who were operating at the same time within the same three-square-mile neighborhood <sighs> and preying on the same pool of vulnerable women. And that is the story of the Inglewood neighborhood with two concurrent serial killers and the woman who was claimed to have been victims of both of them. But I have a post-note on this story. Okay. I found it really distressing to discover how hard it was to get any information at all on the 16 victims of these two serial killers. It is, yeah. It's as if these women never existed. No photos, no information on their families, no tributes to who they were as individuals. And this is due to the circumstances of their lives as marginalized people. Mm -hmm. They lived in a dangerous place. They participated in sexual currency, and, you know, that's all frowned on by society. So as far as society goes, yeah, it's bad that those guys killed them, but they were just sex workers. They just put themselves in the They were situation. just drug addicts. Mm -hmm. So it just infuriates me that the society acts like these women didn't even exist. And it's, again, with the thing about when it happens, a serial killer goes and kills a certain amount of people, people just lump them all together, and it's... Yeah. That's all that's ever going to be known about them is that they were murdered by this person. And it's very... I mean, don't tell me in 1993 and 1999 that there were no photographs of these women. Yeah, that's... I mean, they didn't have cell phones And it's not like I care what they look like. I just want them to be remembered as people that are now gone. Even if you have a baby picture, you know, like something, yes. something yes. to humanize so, them as an actual person. Yeah. It's not like we're doing this because we are glorifying crime. Or it's we fun. Are, it's not There are just fun. way too many victims who have been more or less forgotten. Yeah. And we owe it to them to keep their memory alive to the best of our abilities. Absolutely. And so that's why I was enraged that I couldn't find any information about these women. That's crazy, though. I didn't... I mean, I knew that there were serial killers in Chicago, but you don't hear about them that often well, I'm, out of there. And, and there were two? I think there's one now. Is I think there there's a serial killer that's active in Chicago right now, and they're calling him the Strangler. And I don't know how many victims. It seems like there are quite a few. So It just blows my mind how many active serial killers there probably are right now. It's a little bit making you not want to ever leave your house. Well, <laughs> we just uh, know about them now. Yeah, you can notice it a lot. Yeah, I mean, back in 1800, I'm sure that there were people going around killing people. But one, it wasn't something that anybody ever heard about because mm -hmm. the people they were killing didn't have social media. True, and, and then and there wasn't national news. I saying, was gonna say you could kill somebody in two towns over, just move to the next town, and <laughs> they wouldn't hear about it for another two weeks. That's cause... right. So anyway, that's my story about. Well, it is a bummer, but at the very least, at least they both ended up getting taken into custody. Yes. Yes, a lot of those people didn't have to die if stuff had been done sooner, but yeah, at the end of the day, they stopped them. So I'll take that little grain of salt with Yeah, that, that's true. They at least got caught. So ours actually kind of had a little bit in common as you were telling your story. All right. Because Mine was an unusual story, I thought. Well, it was unusual, but they yours happened around Christmas time in one of your murders. And mine happened in Christmas time, too. Well, well, well it was the trial. Sorry, that happened around Christmas time. Yeah, that was... A whole but as soon as you said Christmas, I was, we hate Christmas, and we both do Christmas things. <laughs> anyway. Christmas in March. Yes. 
So this week I decided to go to Utah since we have a bunch of listeners in Utah. Yes, and some of them apparently live in the middle of the Great Salt Lake because... Yeah, whoever lives on a houseboat, we'd like to know about your lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) But my story took place Christmas time, 1990, so December. Okay. In the mountains of Utah... They said they were in Weber Canyon, which is a really remote place. It's kind of in the mountains and really far apart houses. So this family, they had, I don't know if they lived here permanently or if it was just they go here for like family reunions and they just mm-hmm. take turns using the it's cabin. It's a getaway. It's a getaway location mm-hmm. for them. But it's called... It sounds like a good place for getaway unless murder oh, happens beautiful. there. It's beautiful. So I'll include some of those pictures on our Instagram. So the family that owned this house was the TD family. This house, like I said, it was very remote, so it was actually two miles off of the road. So the only oh, wow. way it was accessible was by snowmobile during That's the winter. It's a hell of a driveway. Hell of a driveway. Okay. And it sounded like they didn't even really have a driveway. It was just kind of take the snowmobile from the main road and make your way out You just there. have to know which part of the, yeah, the woods got, to go through. Yeah, so it seems like a safe place. So it's a very snowy location, and they did have lots of trees, but I wouldn't say it's woody. Okay. So they actually nicknamed this cabin the TD's Tranquility because oh, that was cute. their safe space, yeah. On December 22nd, three days before Christmas, 1990, the family all left to Salt Lake City to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. There were two sisters who were 16 and 20. Okay. Their two parents and then the mother-in-law. Okay. So their grandmother, their two parents, and then the two sisters. Okay, got it. They had all gone on two separate snowmobiles shopping throughout the city and then while they were gone however two men just happened upon this random cabin in the woods that they two just, miles off the road they two just miles happened off the upon road it? what had happened with was they were actually both on parole at the time of course they were of course they were so the two men were von lester taylor who was just recently released from prison he'd gotten 15 years for aggravated burglary but he was living in a halfway house at the time and then Edward Stephen Delhi, who was in prison as well for arson. So they both got out and on parole at the same time and were living together at this halfway house. And then they told the halfway house, hey, we're going to go out and we have a job interview. So they decided to go leave for that and then actually just skip town and decided to go to where Von Taylor's family lived out in this rural part of Utah. So they were in the area just because his family also had a cabin out nearby, which All was right. a couple miles away, but they had walked there. Okay, so at least it wasn't completely random. It wasn't completely random, but he didn't know the family. He didn't know. He just happened to see them leave that day and decided, hey, they've been kind of going through these abandoned cabins and ransacking them. So he saw the family leave and they said, well, I guess we're going to hit this place next. Wow, okay. Ugh. I know. Around 3.30 p.m. that day, 20-year-old Lene Tide, it's T-I-E-D-E. Okay. But they pronounce it Tide. All right. And her mother, Kay Tidwell Tide, who was 49, and her grandmother, Beth Tidwell Potts, who was 70 at the time, arrived to the home first. So the women got home. They began unpacking all the stuff they just bought, starting up the fire, just getting cozy. It was below zero outside that day and they came in a snowmobile so they were just trying to get cozy again yeah and that's when the two men stepped out from the shadows pointing a gun they're still there Ugh. yes they're still there and they were hiding so slow just get the shit and get out we'll get to that all right 
So they began pointing a gun. One man was pointing it at 20-year-old Linnae, and the other was pointing it at her mother, Kay. Vaughn Taylor, the one who had family in the area, proceeded to shoot Kay and Beth, so her mother and her grandmother, right in front of her without hesitation. So obviously, Linnae is fucking terrified, and she begins to panic. I promise, this is rough. This is the good story, though. I promise. Just hang in I with don't me. believe you. It doesn't sound point. good it yet. It doesn't sound good. This is terrible. Okay. All right, all right. So Linnea began to panic, not only because she had witnessed the murders of her mother and grandmother. I'm beginning to panic. But she also knew that her father, Rolf, and her 16 year old sister, Trisha, were not far behind them on their own snowmobile and would be arriving any minute now. And might just get shot, too. And might just. She didn't want to lose her whole freaking family. Exactly. That day. And herself, too. Yeah, so she tried her very best to kind of reason with them and try to get them to leave and tell her, oh, nobody else is coming, just please leave, I won't tell anybody, like that kind of thing. But she was too late, and they held her captive as her other family members arrived on their snowmobile. So her dad and her sister pulled up outside of the house, and the intruders immediately met them outside, taking them at gunpoint and dragged them back into the cabin. See? I was right. You were right. (laughs) I wish I was wrong. You're one not man. allowed to do the good story anymore. I know. You're giving me too much stress. Well, if you think about it, they if they're surviving something, so Well, I don't It's know. not gonna be surviving the best day I of their don't life. I believe you. I haven't heard the end of the damn story <laughs> <Okay>. yet. Okay. <laughs> so one man held a gun to Rolf, their father's head, firing twice, but it misfired both times. Holy shit. Unfortunately, the third time it did fire successfully and deployed into his face. Oh, So as if that wasn't fucking enough, they then doused his body in gasoline and set him on fire as the two daughters were forced to watch. Was was he still alive? They nobody had any idea at this point. Because they, I mean, getting shot in the face doesn't mean you're necessarily dead. You might be disfigured. But now he's he's burning alive. Now he's burning. Yes. After they did that to him, they doused the rest of the cabin with gasoline and set the whole place on fire, taking the two girls hostage again at gunpoint. So the way they made it sound was they made the girls get onto the two snowmobiles that were outside and made them drive so that way they could sit behind them with the gun and make sure they were doing what they wanted them to do. Oh, they were riding bitch. How cute. Yeah, I know. At this point, a nearby neighbor had heard the gunshots and looked outside to see the two snowmobiles fleeing away quickly and immediately called 911. Why were the neighbors alarmed by that? Because, I mean, if you get on a snowmobile, you're probably going to be going quickly. That's the whole point of snowmobiles. But if you heard gunshots... Okay. So they heard the gunshots, then they looked out the window to see what the hell that was, and All saw right. these two girls with random men they've never seen before. Okay, it didn't occur to me that they had heard them that far yeah, away. Yeah, so that's why they looked out in okay. the first place. On the way back to the main road where their, I think they said they had a Lincoln that was the family car, where that was parked, the two girls spotted their uncle, who was also about to come down to the cabin for the family get-together, Randy Zorn who waved to them, assuming they were just out with friends, because he didn't know these two guys, but it's not weird. He like, didn't know his brother or whoever is burning He didn't know everybody was dead, yeah. So, so as they passed him, they actually made the conscious decision to completely ignore him and pretend they didn't know him, because they knew that he'd end up dead too, which was smart, and also probably gave him a hint of something's wrong. They're yeah, not, they're not acting They're not right. looking at me and making eye contact. So they completely ignored him and to spare his life, and just they didn't even slow down the snowmobile. They just kept going on a the path back to the road. Mm -hmm. Once getting back to the main road, the two men forced the girls into the back of their family car, and they once again passed their uncle as they left, because he had turned back around and said, what the fuck are they doing? 
Yeah, why are why is everybody acting so weird? So their uncle Randy once again tried to wave them down, like maybe they didn't see me the Randy, first time. Go in the house. I know he's persistent. I'll give him that. God, Randy. The girls actually told the men, "Oh, he must just be a neighbor being friendly. That's how people are in these parts." He's probably they, bringing us banana bread. Yeah. So soon after, puzzled still about his niece's coldness, Randy spotted another snowmobile coming from the distance. Okay. Are you ready for this? I told you it was below zero that day. It's freezing outside. And Randy noticed the rider was not wearing a coat, gloves, all of his clothing, except for like underwear, was missing. And wow. he was, this is fucking weird. So then yeah. as the guy gets closer, he realizes his face is covered in blood. It's his brother? It was Rolf. Is that his brother or is That's that his the guy wife's husband? who was not only shot in the fucking face. I know, face, but whose brother is it this It is uncle? his brother, yes. Okay. And he, the reason he couldn't really recognize him was because his face was so swollen from the gunshot, you know? Yeah. And covered in blood. But Wow, so he put himself out even though he had an... So what Rolf had done is after he played dead even as they set him on fucking fire... Can you imagine the He played that dead takes? until the girls were gone, and then he crawled himself to the bathroom shower, completely put, took off all of his clothes, put out the fire that was on his head, like his hair was on fire, and had driven the two miles this on a snowmobile is... back to the road. Oh my god. Yes. This is Mary Vincent badass. I know. So I was like, holy god. shit. So as Rolf approaches Brandy, he states, I've been shot, my wife has been killed, and my daughters have been kidnapped. Oh which. My god. Very to the point, let's go right now, <laughs> type of thing. So so both Rolf and Randy hopped into Randy's car and began to pursue the Lincoln that the girls had been in. Luckily, Randy also had a cell phone in the car, which was very rare in the early 90s. Did he have a weapon? That's what I want to know. No, no weapon. Oh, crap. However, he did have a cell phone so that he could call 911 and get them on this with him. So he ended up catching up to the Lincoln with the girls inside. And soon, because he was describing to the police what road they were turning off of and all this stuff, they were able to catch up as well. And the police chase that ensued was at, they said a minimum the entire time was 90 miles per hour. So they were going around all these back roads and stuff, just whipping around, which ended up causing the Lincoln to lose control. And as if these girls hadn't been through enough today, lost control and fell down an embankment. Wow. Yeah, but... That might be the only chance for them to escape. Yeah, it wasn't going to end well no matter what. So, no. Luckily, both girls were completely uninjured, and they both put their hands up and said that they were being held hostage, and the police came, and both men ended up surrendering. So in May of 1991, Von Taylor and Edward Deli pled guilty. Taylor was sentenced to death, having been the only shooter, so... Delhi had a gun, but he did not use it at any point during this attack. He was just basically holding the girls hostage with it. Okay. So Delhi was convicted of second-degree murder, because he still had, obviously, a huge fucking role in this, and received life in prison. Taylor has appealed his sentence, the death sentence, multiple times, but both Lene and Trish, the two girls that survived, fight against it every time it comes up. Yeah. As it was clearly premeditated, because not only had he stayed there and waited for them, it was not just a robbery attempt, they later proved, because they found when they went back and rebuilt the cabin and stuff, like after all the fire damage and whatnot, they ended up finding a VHS tape the men had recorded of them literally just going through, waiting for them, the family to get home. At one point, Taylor had called his friend while they were at the house with the VHS recording and said, yep, I'm just waiting here, getting ready to shoot some people. 
Holy shit. So they were there for nothing, no other reason but to just kill people that day. What is wrong with people? No. What the hell is wrong with people? I think I'm just going to fuck up some people's lives today. It is an entire family. They didn't do anything to you. I don't understand. Well, that's what these people do. They don't care if you did anything to them. They just want to cause some damage. And it's another story where there's just no motive. They just just want to... Shitty. It just makes me mad. In 2020, while he's still on death row and the other guy... 30 years later, that jackass is still on... And Judge Tina Campbell overturned Taylor's death sentence because she found his public defender inadequate. Well, I, I don't know how much more public, proof you needed. I think a lot of public defenders are inadequate because it's their first job. And you know what? <laughs> Some people don't deserve adequate public defense. I'm well, sorry. everyone deserves adequate public defense. But, but just the, because you have a public defender doesn't mean that you didn't do what they said that you did. Right. They literally had video footage of you saying, ha ha ha, this family's going to come home and going to fucking kill them all. Like, what more do you need? Um. So... However, that was short-lived because in 2021, a federal appeals court reversed this decision again and placed him back on death row. So, to, as of 2021, he is set to be put to death. Still. So, what part of this story is the positive light at the end of our? I mean, I think that's pretty day. positive. They both got put in life in jail. Plus, he's getting the death penalty still. So, they- so nobody got to punch him in the nuts. Nobody got to like rip his eyeball out. Nobody got to stab him in the heart. Not yet. He's still in jail, though, so we'll see if maybe some prison justice gets done. No double machete action. There's nobody with, like, chop chop. Need a little Jordan O'Connor going on here from the stalker story. Oh. Chop chop. Chop chop in the alley. I was like, is that like a martial artist I don't know about? (laughs) So at the end of the day, the Titus family rebuilt the home and continued to use it as a family gathering with new memories to this day. Hopefully. Rolf, unfortunately, was later diagnosed with cancer, and he passed away in 2008. But he was about 70 at the time, so that's still a pretty good life lived when you've... Considering that he could have been dead on the floor Burning to death, yeah. And he's got to die in a hospital peacefully, surrounded by his loved ones. So, Lene went on to marry her childhood sweetheart, and they now have nine children. And now Trisha is the mother of two little girls and continues to bring them to the cabin that her father rebuilt... She claims that the location is still as magical, but now it's also healing. I don't know. I mean, so it's still a really fucking depressing story, but like, yeah, I'm a little bit mad at you about this one because I was expecting something like, oh yes, woo, at the end, but no. I mean, Rolf swooped in with his madass self and yeah. saved both of his daughters, who would none of those kids would exist anymore. That's his a, grandkids. That's if a good he did point. not pull himself together and come through. Yeah, but he didn't. Chop them. I mean, I want the bad guys to get chopped. No. I mean, I always say I don't espouse vigilante justice, but I kind of do. Kind of do. It just makes it a little bit sweeter at the end. I agree. You just want to see somebody get their comeuppance at the end. Well, I just... It makes me happy that even though... What's his face? Deli didn't actually kill anybody. He's still life in prison. He's not getting out. And those girls are going to make damn well sure that he never gets out, so... yeah. Oh, wow. I know. I'm so sorry. Good job, Rolf. Good job, by Rolf. And we will include pictures from this week's story on our Instagram. So, we had our first review. Our first written review, I guess. Well, not our first reading, but our first review Mm -hmm. on Apple Podcasts. And we want to thank Maggie from Wichita. 
Thank you, Maggie. That was so sweet. And yes. we love being called a crime family. I just think that's so awesome. There's no better way to put it, is there? No, there isn't. <laughs> I kind of think of us and our followers as the crime family now. Yeah, that's, I, that's what we should call them. <laughs> I like that. All right, you heard it here first. Well, I guess you heard it from Maggie. I, from I don't know if someone else is already using it. All right. Well, thank you, Maggie. That really made our entire week. We have also started a pin map. Yes, we got our world map where we're marking every time we get a new listener in a new location. Maybe we'll take a picture of that sometime and we can post it on our Instagram and then you can see your pin. We need to get a bigger U.S. map because the ones in the U.S. are, there's so many there that we can't put all the pins in and it just looks like there's only one pin when there should be like There's six. like five on top of each other, especially yeah. in like Atlanta slash Columbus. <laughs> That's from. right. We had new ones in the U.K. this week. Mm-hmm. We, we had, had some already, but we, we have like some three, new ones now. We now. have four, I think. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you if you are listening to us. We really appreciate that. Especially if you've gotten this far and that's episode right. at this well, point. Thank we you. We love you guys and we appreciate your listening. We appreciate your support. And if you really want to be supportive, if you could go and rate or review us anywhere that you listen, mm-hmm. that would be really helpful because it helps us get. Yeah, presented to more people. We will give you a shout out if you leave a review with your name on it. But we we'll save them for the end so we won't make you listen if you are really tired of us by yeah. the end of the show. You can skip <laughs> this if you want to, but we just really, really, really love you guys. So, All right. Bailey has kicked my ass today, so I, I don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, we can be found on Instagram at truecrimebnbs. Until next week. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Sound check. Sound check on Bailey's part. Sound checkity check, 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 check. No, too much. Too much.